Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Say that again. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome all of you that are worshiping with us online as well, and just trust that God will touch your heart as we are uh, moving more deeply into the sermon series that's entitled Going Vertical, which has the idea of worship, worship. Now, full confession this morning, as I've been prepping for this sermon, I have felt as though God put it on my heart to be more personal and more pastoral than I normally am. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share with you a little bit about my own experience in worship and how that's formed me, as well as we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture from the Older Testament, and we're going to learn some basic principles about worship. I think it's important to say at the outset when we say worship, it can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Things like this, Pastor Scott just mentioned that we're going to have four worship services next Sunday. And in order to be redundant, I'm going to share them again. Indoor services are 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30, and then outside on the church lawn at 10.45. The online service will be live streamed at 10 and 11.30. Now, when we use that terminology, we say we've got four times of worship or four worship services. But interestingly enough, if you look at worship in the Bible or a worship service in Scripture, you'll discover there's a lot of components that make up a worship service. There'll be a sermon. That's happening right now, in case you didn't know. There is prayer. That's what Rob led us in earlier. We actually had worship. And the idea of praise in worship, where Pastor Stephen led us. And there's also fellowship, which has become much more difficult since the turn in the beginning of the year. But those are the things that make up a worship service. What I want to talk about is what we would call praise and worship. It's the musical side. It's the part of our service or a private devotional life where you sing to God and you make melody in your heart to God. I want to begin again by sharing a little bit about my own experience with worship, my own experience. In the early 1970s, I was a preteen boy and was being raised on a farm in Wisconsin. Someone approached my mom and shared faith, and we ended up beginning to attend what could basically be called a storefront church. It was a church where people were coming to faith in Jesus. It was at the end of the hippie movement. There was a powerful move of God all across the country. It was called the Jesus Movement. It's where people began to live the sexed out, burned out, drugged out lifestyle, and they were coming to Jesus by the hundreds of thousands. And the church that we were involved with or we began to attend was involved with that. My initial worship experiences were built around the following. Have any of you ever heard Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama sung with the verbiage of Amazing Grace? Anyone ever hear that? I did. I worshiped to that regularly. 
Because what was happening in the churches were there was a movement towards worship choruses. They didn't abandon hymns, but they began to write worship choruses. And because they were, many of them were burnt out ex-rock and rollers, they took rock songs and just put Christian terms over those rock songs, and we would sing them in worship. So I can literally tell you, I have lifted my hands and worshiped God to Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama to the term of Amazing Grace. It's awesome. And believe me, as a preteen boy, that was incredible. Absolutely incredible. There's other types of worship that I experienced. Many of you know that for 10 years, I served as a chaplain at Princeton University prior to moving here 21 years ago. And worship there was very different than that storefront worship experience. Instead of having a bunch of hippies and Congo drums and guitars, we now had a pipe organ that the university spent $1.6 million on restoring. And our Christian fellowship would meet on Friday nights at Princeton University And we would meet up in the actual organ chamber. There was a small area that was about 25 feet wide, probably about 35 feet deep, and the pipe organ surrounded you. There was also some choir benches up there where the choir could sit. That's where our Christian fellowship would meet. And I can tell you that holding a hymnal with the pipe organ so loud that your teeth would chatter, it was awesome. Absolutely awesome. And I experienced God's presence at both, at both. Hymnal, organ music, guitars, Leonard Skinner, Sweet Home Alabama, to the words of Amazing Grace. I've been through all of that kind of worship. But the other thing I know about worship is God showed up in both of those settings and all of those in between. And the first thing I know pastorally and personally about worship is this, and I want you to hear me. Praise and worship on a Sunday morning is where I met Jesus. It was during worship. Let me explain how. Praise and worship on a Sunday morning is what made the faith of other people become real to me before I had my own faith in Jesus. I want to say that again. Praise and worship on a Sunday morning is what made the faith of other people real to me before I had my own faith in Jesus. As a preteen boy, I would sit in this church and people would be singing. Some raised their hands, some didn't. Some sung, they could sing pretty well, some were terrible. Some people sat down, some people knelt. People took all different positions during worship, all different positions. But it was during that worship as a preteen boy, I knew faith was real. I knew it. Because I had gotten to know some of these people, and they were sensible people, good people, and they were worshiping God with all of their hearts. In other words, their faith in Jesus became real to me before my own faith in Jesus became real to me. And there is hardly a Sunday morning that goes by that I don't wonder if that's taking place. I wonder if it didn't take place this morning where someone who's worshiping with us online or was in one of our three services, that during worship, 
The faith expressed in worship by other people around you has begun to speak to you about your own faith or need of faith in Jesus. The other thing that informs my worship is this. When I was serving as a chaplain in New Jersey, there was a pastor there by the name of Otto Wagner. I looked up Otto online on Facebook. He's still alive. He's pushing 90. But when I was there as a young pastor, he told me something about worship that transformed my understanding of worship. He said, Pete, worship is the time when every Christian brings their body, their soul, and their spirit into alignment before God. In other words, worship is the time where as we are created as triune beings, you have a body, you have a soul, which is your mind, will, and emotion, and you have your spirit, which lives forever, and soul brands the spirit. Those three things during worship come into alignment. Worship is physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual. So can you imagine what it looks like for God as he looks down from heaven and he looks down at his children and as all three parts of how he has created us comes into alignment before him and we sing to him and we sing so that others can hear it in the room, we sing the goodness of God and the grace of God and the truth of God to him. God sees us not only in unity as a congregation, but in unity individually in his presence through worship. Now what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at that Older Testament passage where worship is expressed. It's from this story that I have learned the most about worship in the Bible. And it's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 6 Verses 1 through 7. You maybe have never read the Bible before, but if you begin to read the Bible and you're reading in the Newer Testament, maybe you're reading it for the first time, you're going to notice pretty quickly that the book of Isaiah is the most quoted book in the Newer Testament other than the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms. And so the book of Isaiah and the people during the time of Jesus, they were very familiar with the book of Isaiah. And in our reading, the context is quite simple. In the context of our reading, what we have is we've got a guy named Isaiah who is being commissioned by God to become a prophet. So his role will be to speak to the nation and to speak to the king about the reality of who God is. So in Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, what happens is Isaiah recounts to us the worship experience that he was invited into in heaven. Now remember this. This is a worship experience in heaven. And Isaiah was welcomed into it. So let's read together. And how this is going to work is I will be reading the passage as I read it. You can read it on your smartphone, on your Bible, or up on the screen. But as I read it, I'm going to stop and make a few quick comments. Isaiah 6, 1 to 7. Here's what the text tells us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I want to push the pause button. Interestingly enough, Uzziah is one of the good kings and they're rare. 
There weren't many good kings over the nation of Israel, and he was one of the good ones. In one of the devotionals that I read, the devotional writer, his name is Oswald Chambers, in his devotional, My Utmost for Esaias, said, isn't it fascinating that when the good king died, that's when the prophet saw God. There's a connection. When the good ruler died, then God revealed himself to the prophet. Reading on, here's what Isaiah tells us. He said, I saw the Lord, and I want you to picture what he saw. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, when Isaiah was welcomed into this worship experience, heaven opens, Isaiah looks up, and when he looks up, he sees God seated on a throne, and the garments of God come down out of heaven and literally fill the temple where Isaiah is. And then he says, verse 2, and above him, meaning above God, were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now here's what you need to know. Seraphim are fiery serpents. That's what they are. They're big, huge, scary, fiery serpents. And the text says, and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. So picture what the text is telling us. We've got these fiery serpents who are flying over top of God, and what fascinates me is who they're talking to. The text tells us that they're saying to one another. They're not saying it to God. They're saying it to each other. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Then the seraphim on the other side of God would shout back in chorus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the text goes on to say, and at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Can you imagine Isaiah as he's viewing this in heaven? The temple is literally pounding with the worship to God and the whole facility is trembling and then smoke fills the, tem uh, the temple and he shouts in verse five, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man. I want you to remember that. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Can you imagine Isaiah? God welcomes him into the vision and he's welcomed into heaven. He sees this worship. There are these fiery serpents with six, with three pair of wings, with six wings. And as he's observing that, he hears the holy, holy, he views God. And all of a sudden, he's aware that he's human. He's aware that he's sinful. He verbalizes that into God's presence. And a seraphim comes and atones for his sin. 
Now let's talk about worship for us. First of all, there's three things I'm going to ask us to focus on. But the first one is the awesomeness of God. The awesomeness of God. One of the things that I believe is a competition in our lives for recognizing the awesomeness of God. I want to illustrate it the following way. A little while ago, I went and played golf in Seattle, Washington. I actually was out there taking a grad course, but my host, who was incredibly generous, took me golfing. And while we were golfing, we went to a municipal golf course that was literally at the base of a mountain called Mount Sai in Washington, S-I, Mount Sai, S-I. And while we were there and while we were playing golf, I found myself on the golf course not paying a lot of attention to my game, but I spent a lot of times taking pictures of Mount Sai because it was awesome. And every once in a while, a cloud would move. The mountain would just all of a sudden light up with the sun. Then the cloud would come back. And I just found myself kind of playing golf, but most of the time, by the way, if you saw my golf game, you'd realize why I wasn't really focusing on golf. I was focusing on something else. But here I am, and I'd take pictures, and I was sending them to my wife. I was sending them to my son. I was sending them to my girls, going, you won't believe how awesome this mountain is. And I kept snapping pictures, and probably the eighth or the ninth hole, I realized that no one around me ever looked at the mountain, ever. They focused on golf. You want to know why? Because they golf there all the time. And Mount Sai is totally familiar to them. And familiarity takes away awesomeness. It's easy to do. When you first see it, it's awesome. But you become familiar with it. And over time, it just becomes part of something and it kind of loses its awesomeness. I think that that can be one of the things that keeps us from the understanding of how awesome God is. We become familiar with God's presence. We become familiar with worship. And we lose the sense of his awesomeness. The second thing I want us to think about in worship is my humanness. I want you to notice what Isaiah said. Isaiah said so clearly, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a what? A man. I'm aware of my humanness in the midst of worship. When I worship God truthfully, in spirit and in truth, it reminds Pete Hartwig again that I'm not God. He is God. I worship him. He's the center, not me. And we experience that through Isaiah's vision of heaven and his response to what he sees. I want to illustrate this idea of my humanness and I'm not God the following way. Many of you know that I serve with the UVA wrestling team. I serve as their chaplain, kind of their life coach. It's volunteer. And um, because of that, I travel with them to the National Wrestling Tournament. So about four years ago, I was at the National Wrestling Tournament with the team, and there was a breakfast hosted by the Fellowship of Christian Athletes for the wrestlers. And so I ended up going. It's a ministry here on grounds at UVA as well. So I went to this FCA banquet, but the real reason why I was going was because of who the speaker was. I wanted to hear him. 
If you know anything about wrestling, you've heard of a guy by the name of Jordan Burroughs. Jordan Burroughs. Just so that I'd get all my facts straight, I looked up Jordan Burroughs on all-knowing Wikipedia. And here's what we know about Jordan Burroughs. Here's his record. Jordan Burroughs was born July 8th, 1988. And here's the, the things that he's won. He's the most famous American wrestler alive. He is an Olympic gold medalist. He's still wrestling in his 30s and still winning, by the way. He is an Olympic gold medalist, four-time world champion, six-time World Cup champion, three-time Pan American Games gold medalist, and four-time Pan American champion, and he was a D1 champ as well when he wrestled in college. So if you're around the wrestling world, everyone knows who Jordan Burroughs is, everyone. And in looking him up online, getting ready for this sermon, here's what it says on the personal tab about Jordan Burroughs. I want you to listen to what it says. It begins this way. Burroughs is a Christian. It's the first thing it says. Burroughs is a Christian. He has spoken about his faith saying, Listen carefully. A, golden, a gold medal is always going to leave you empty. There's no other thing in life that is more fulfilling than a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Contentment is one of the biggest things I've learned. Knowing that regardless of where you are in life, it's all about being content with God's provision. Next sentence, Burroughs is married. Now let me get to the point. So we're there at the National Wrestling Tournament. Now you have an understanding of who Jordan Burroughs is. He's the keynote speaker at this FCA banquet, and I can't wait to hear him. And so Jordan Burroughs gets up, and he begins to relay a story about how he actually became serious about his relationship with Jesus. He said he'd been a Christian for a long time, but had never taken it seriously. It was more like a label than a life. What he was telling us there at this national wrestling tournament was that what turned his life around was that he often gets invited to speak places. In fact, any wrestling camp in the world wants him to come speak. Well, there just happened to be a wrestling camp that was near where he lived, and it was run by a Christian organization, and their goal was to reach teenage boys, high school boys, with the gospel of Jesus by having a wrestling camp, and there was about 150 high school boys there for the wrestling camp. He said he really didn't want to go, but he had said yes, so he went over to address and talk to these boys. He said when he walked into the room, and it was in this gym, and there was a stage up front, when he walked into the room, someone up front announced, hey, there's Jordan Burroughs. And 150 teenage boys turned around, looked at Jordan, nodded, and then they turned around and faced the front. And then the worship band started. And he said 150 high school boys raised their hands and began to worship Jesus. And it ticked him off. Because he said, I sat in the back and I said to myself, I'm the most famous wrestler in the world. And I just walked into the room and you guys barely paid me a head nod. Why did I come today? And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit convicted him. And he said, that moment of 150 boys focusing on Jesus instead of him was the most humbling experience of his life. 
and it transformed his walk with Jesus. It transformed him. You want to know why? In God's presence, he learned he's a human. He isn't God. He's a human. God is God. He's human. And there's an eternal difference between the two. And that's what Isaiah discovered as well. And then the third thing is this. Is that in God's presence, Isaiah discovers not only that he's human, but he also discovers that he's sinful. But I want you to notice what this story tells us. The story doesn't focus on the sinfulness of Isaiah. The story focuses on what the seraphim does to him to make him pure and clean. you got to catch this. So the third thing we need to know about worship. Worship is, yes, I'm aware I'm a sinner, but the focus in worship is how God and God alone can make a way for me to enter in to worshiping him. If he doesn't do something for me, I can't get in to worship him. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about that. That there's a God who desires for us our Trinity-created realities to come in alignment before him. And as we come into alignment before him, we worship him. But in the midst of authentic worship, I recognize that God is awesome I'm a human, and in my humanness, I'm sinful. But I don't focus on my sinfulness. I focus on what God has done to take away that sin and to remove it from my life so that I can worship him fully and freely. That's worship. That's praise, and it's worship. It does not make light of my sin, But what it does is it places the emphasis and the heaviness on the God who does something about that sin so that I can be freed up to worship him. Verses six and seven, Isaiah announces his sinfulness. And then the seraphim takes a coal, flies over to him, touches his lips. And by the way, impure lips is the sign of an impure heart. The Bible teaches us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So with the idea of unclean lips comes this understanding that the heart is not right before God. And so the seraphim comes and takes away his guilt and his sin is atoned for. Now I know in closing that some of us who know the Bible well would say the following. But guess what, Pete? You just had us in the Older Testament the whole time. Next Sunday is part two of this sermon. And we're going to focus on Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, when John the Revelator does the same thing that Isaiah did in the Older Testament, John does it in the Newer Testament, and here's what he says when he was invited into worship in heaven. He said, when I saw him, meaning Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me 
and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. You see, God through Jesus has made a way just like he did with the seraphim in the Old Testament. Now it's through Jesus in the New Testament. And if you know the book of Revelation, the angel lifts up John the Revelator and he steps into the fullness of the presence of God. When I think about putting feet to my faith in worship, I can tell you as your pastor, if it had not been for private and corporate worship, I would have not made it throughout this year. This has been the most difficult year of my life to lead this church and to serve this church as the pastor. But every time I go into worship, I'm reminded again, the awesomeness of God, my humanness, I'm not God, God is God, and yes, my sinfulness, but more importantly, how God alone can make a way for me to be in his presence. Would you stand with me as we close? As we close out our time, I'm going to ask that you would do something special with me. I referenced that I've been in worship settings, some with guitars sitting on the floor, all the way to a pipe organ in a cathedral. And I've experienced the presence of God in both. I will never forget when I was serving at Princeton. It was very difficult to be a Christian there. If you were at Princeton and you were a student and you weren't a Christian, you'd never say you were. It wasn't worth it. And I know what it was like on Friday nights when our Christian fellowship would gather together and students would gather for worship and they had spent that week living for Jesus in a context that was adversarial to faith in Christ. And all of us would long for the time where we would enter into the cathedral and we would go up there in the middle of that pipe organ. And when we would sit there, one of our students, his name was David De Silva, was a professional organist. And he would take out his key and he would open the organ and he'd begin to fill that thing with air and it would begin to hiss around us. It always reminded me of the seraphim. And David is a professional organist, by the way, he went on to be one of the greatest theologians of our day. As a matter of fact, next Sunday, when I preach from the book of Revelation, I'll be using his commentary on the book of Revelation. But David would start up that pipe organ, and he would crank it all the way up. And he would play, a mighty fortress is our God. And it was amazing to watch college students who'd been battered all week gather together and as that organ began to literally throttle that building, I'm gonna tell you your teeth would chatter. And then we begin to sing, a mighty fortress is our God. I'm gonna ask that you would say the words with me to this hymn. I don't know if you know this, but in a lot of churches, there's, there's, they're not allowed to sing, but they can speak the words. And the reason why is, is because of COVID. Singing projects. Speaking doesn't do that as much. 
And so because of that, I'm going to ask that you would say out loud the words to a mighty fortress is our God with me. Let's say it out loud, but as we do, let's think about the truths that we are speaking. Let's say it together. Are you ready? Are you ready? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name, from age to age the same, he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Martin Luther, 1528. Let's worship Jesus together.